this is all exquisite suffering. And if it can't be well managed with medication, we allow patients to die. We're not going to put them on every machine possible to extend and prolong their suffering. And most Rabbanim agree with that. But when you say, well, there's quality of life issues. And now me personally, I agree with that. But me halachically, I don't know that I've ever really seen a source for that halachically. And if I'm wrong, I, I would be happy to be corrected. But saying that if someone is not having a good quality of life, we should allow them to die. I'm not quite sure there's a place for that in halacha. There's a difference between quality of life and active suffering. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In our last episode, I spoke with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody about bringing greater awareness to issues associated with end-of-life and organ donation. This opened up, I believe, an important conversation, but there's a lot more to say, especially as it relates to clinical insights from people who actively work with dying patients and their families. To that end, I was honored to speak with Dr. Blima Marcus, who was previously a guest on this podcast in episode 81, which was released in October 2021. A few days ago, Blimi spoke with me about the very serious questions about how Orthodox providers help from Jews die and the clinical, emotional, and psychological issues that are involved. It nicely complements the episode with Rabbi Brody and also highlights an important area of disagreement. This was a very important conversation. As difficult and perhaps unpleasant as it is to talk about end of life, it's crucial that we confront it honestly and forthrightly so that, when the time comes for our loved ones, we'll be informed about the issues and prepared to implement the patient's wishes. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. I have started a sub-stack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, where I plan to write articles about some of the issues we discuss here, as well as other subjects that I think are worth discussing. Go to the description of this podcast to find a link in order to read my latest article, The Heresy of Fanatic Religious Devotion, and in order to access a free subscription. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Dr. Blima Marcus is an oncology nurse practitioner, adjunct professor at Hunter College, and public health advocate. She has worked at NYU and Memorial Sloan Kettering in different oncology fields, including breast, GI, head and neck, and lung cancer. Her expertise is in symptom management and end-of-life care. Dr. Blima Marcus, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. You were a guest, Blimey, on this podcast in October 2021 when we talked about members of the Orthodox world who were COVID vaccine deniers. So that's not our subject today. But you have been very much at the forefront of that fight as well. You became a social media star, perhaps unwillingly. And I'm just curious, before we get into our main topic, is that still something you're deeply involved in or is that something that's in the past? It's still something I'm very vocal about because I really dislike uh, any kind of denial of facts and a lot of COVID denialism is either revisions of, you know, things we we knew, things that were accurate, you know, denying that masks work, denying that uh, vaccines work. It still is frustrating. So I'm still vocal about it. But, it, you know, what you're saying is correct. I, I, I'm, I'm known for my 
vaccine advocacy, my science advocacy, but my passion and heart truly lie with the topic we're going to discuss today, which is, you know, caring for people at end of life. That's actually my pay job, you know, working in oncology and end of life care. So I am so relieved to be talking on a podcast, not about vaccines, about something that I truly love and I practice all the time. So let's take it away. Absolutely. Let's start off by learning a bit who you are and how you became involved specifically in questions involving end of life care. Well, I'm a nurse practitioner and I've worked in oncology care for my entire career as a registered nurse and then as I upgraded my degree and became a nurse practitioner. So I've worked inpatient in oncology. I've worked outpatient in the ambulatory setting in oncology. The two are very different. Um, it's very interesting. I just saw someone on Twitter talk about if 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 doctors only learn about oncology from being in the hospital, they come away with a very bleak idea of what cancer can do to people. And that is simply because when patients with cancer show up in the hospital, it's one of two things. It's either a complex reaction to their treatment or it's because they've progressed. You know, something's wrong. They're getting sicker. They're in more pain. They come to the hospital. They get scans. We see that things have progressed. So if you're a doctor working only in the hospital, you're going to come across oncology patients in bad scenarios. But if you work outpatient in the clinics where they're coming for treatment, where they're coming for follow-up, you get a very different idea of how advanced our, our care is for oncology, uh, how most patients do well. So I've actually worked in both settings, which I love. And um, I've also been very vocal, you know, either in person or on social media about good oncology care, about evidence-based oncology care, not following fringe promises of cures, and about a lot of um, misunderstandings surrounding end-of-life care. And that's actually led to a lot of people consulting me privately, particularly during COVID, when people did not want their loved ones hospitalized. You know, they knew their loved ones had advanced cancer in other circumstances, Maybe they were taken to the hospital for either pain management or to work up their cancer. But during COVID, no one wanted loved ones alone in the hospital. So that's when I became pretty busy consulting and helping people manage symptoms and end-of-life care in their homes. I see. Can you talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions you just referred to when it comes to end-of-life care? What are people getting wrong? Well, it depends. If you're talking about people you know, misunderstanding end-of-life care from a firm perspective, many people think that means withholding care, you know, just leaving people alone, letting them die without any interventions. That's absolutely false. Um, there are many interventions we do at end of life, you know, we'll treat infections. You know, I think Rabbi Brody, Rabbi Brody referenced on his podcast, very often patients who have complex issues at end of life need to be treated for them, even if it won't prolong their life, but because it will treat something that's causing distress. So if you're having an infection, you're having high fevers and sweats, even if someone has something as basic as a urinary tract infection, that's really uncomfortable. So treating that with antibiotics is a basic part of end-of-life care. Many people think that end-of-life care means just, we're not going to care for you anymore. And that's absolutely false. We care for you, but our goal is different. Our goal is to keep you comfortable, not to cure you, because usually you're in a place when we've acknowledged that cure is not possible. Then can I ask you about that? I'm actually very surprised. Where would that belief come in that you can't treat people or you shouldn't treat people at all, even if it's not prolonging life. As Rabbi Brody and I talked about, some people believe, as Rabbi Jakobovich, for example, advocated, that you should do everything you can to prolong life. And right. most don't agree with that. Most people seem to say, most post schemes seem to say, you can allow life to take its natural course without intervening. But I wouldn't right. think that anyone would think that you can't treat the pain. So where does that come from, that idea? So, well, you asked two different questions. Um, where do we get the idea that we don't treat end-of-life patients? I think that comes from a misconception of DNR. DNR is not a great terminology. It stands for do not resuscitate. And many people, when they hear that, they'll take that to mean do not intervene. And that and that's wrong. We intervene with patients all the time. Like I said, our goals are different. We're not going to try to prolong life if someone is suffering and in terminal illness. And we've consulted with their RUV who agree that further interventions will not extend their life and may only cause them more suffering. But then you reference pain medication. And why do we, why do people think that pain medication is a problem? That's because there's a lot of misperceptions about the role of pain medication and what it can do. Many people have been mistakenly informed that narcotics can kill you. While they can kill when people overdose, we don't overdose our patients. We we prescribe them judiciously, you know, start at the lowest dose, increase only if needed, constantly monitor them. So that's something that I'm very passionate about because if you have ever watched someone suffering in pain, screaming in pain, rolling in bed in pain, watching their families watch them be in pain, 
you would really not want to advocate for restricting pain medication. It just needs to be done carefully. Okay, then explain what you meant a moment ago about DNR not being the same as not intervening. Can you say specifically yeah. what what is a DNR and what are the other things that one does instead? Absolutely. So when people decide to be DNR, and some people consult a rub and some people do not, it's, you know, they, they, they decide on their own. But in the in the super firm world, in the ultra orthodox world, for sure, people usually consult with a rabbi to decide whether they can implement a DNR, which means if their heart stops, or if they have trouble breathing, they do not allow their medical team to do chest compressions, which would possibly restart their heart or to intubate them, which would put them on a breathing machine and allow them to continue breathing, you know, artificially. Now, the problem with being put onto a breathing machine is that halacha does not allow you taking you off the breathing machine because that is you actively stopping something that is keeping someone alive. It's much more halachically acceptable to not put someone on the breathing machine initially and and allow, like you said, allow natural death, which is an alternative term that some people use, A-N-D, which is pretty much what it is. You know, if, if your body is racked by a really tragic illness um, and it, it's kind of time to die because that often does happen. Many people will choose to not go through additional painful and uncomfortable, you know, interventions. And I have been, you know, I've spoken to so many Rabbanim in this position, and it's always fascinating to me to hear how they paskin differently. And I, maybe I've been lucky that most of the Rabbanim I've spoken to have been exquisitely familiar. I'm talking about Rav David Feinstein, Rav Kamenetsky, really true Rabbanim who I can respect, um, whether I agree with their psak or not is not my role. You know, I still follow what the family and what the Rav agree on together, whether it's inadequate pain management, which has been challenging as a provider to watch people in pain, but be told not to treat it as well as I think it should have been, you know, or intubation situations. Um, can I give you an anecdote or? Absolutely. I okay. would like to hear one. Okay. So this, this is one scenario, which I'll never forget. I had a 50 year old woman from woman come into uh, my hospital with trouble breathing. Now she had every breathing problem. She had lung cancer. She had uh, what we call pneumonitis, which is from radiation. So it's inflammation of the lungs from the radiation she's undergone. Uh, she had pneumonia. So she had about three or four different things going on in her lungs and she was not maintained on regular oxygen anymore. We kept ramping up her oxygen, putting her on a face mask. And we knew that if things progress, she'll need to be intubated. And the question was, is that what she wanted? Did she want to be put on a breathing machine and possibly hover like that until she dies or the very, very slight chance that she would get off the breathing machine. And her husband, they were very from family and her husband, I called her husband and I said, you know, these are questions you need to start thinking about and you need to talk to your rub so we can follow what her wishes are, what your wishes are. Um, she deferred completely to her husband. She said, I want to follow Das Torah. I trust my husband. And her husband called Rob David Feinstein. And Rab David asked all the right questions. And that's what's so important is speaking to Rabbanim who understand end of life. And I hate to say this, but there are so many now who enter these spaces who are not adequately trained and prepared. And there's nothing more frustrating trying to help a family, help a dying patient when you speak to a Rav who doesn't understand the basics of tube feedings, who doesn't understand the basics of pain management, of intubation. And that's what's so painful because you're working with Rabbanim who are not trained in this terrible, terribly sensitive, you know, issue. But like I said, Rav David was on the phone and he asked every, you know, adequate question. And he ultimately determined that she had to be intubated. Now, why was that? That was because four months prior, the same patient came in with the same issues he ruled at that time that she has to be intubated and she came off the machine. It was pneumonia. That was one of the underlying issues. And pneumonia is reversible, you know? So she was treated with antibiotics. I think she was on dialysis temporarily when her kidneys failed, but she recovered. She came off. She went back home. She continued treatment, spent time with her family, and then came back to us. And he said, if one of the issues or both of the issues, pneumonitis can be treated with steroids, pneumonia can be treated with antibiotics. If there's potential for this to be reversed, we have to try and she agreed with it. She said, Vidoy with me. She wrote letters to her daughters. She was intubated. And then she died a few days later. At that point, once she was intubated, then Rav David said, you do not need to do CPR if her heart stops. Then you can let her go. And she died a few days later. I'm going to add a parenthetical comment now. Blimi wrote to me after we recorded this episode because she wanted to add a different point as well about Rav Feinstein. Even though in this particular case, Rav David Feinstein ruled in favor of intubation and resuscitation for this particular patient, 
In a different situation, that of Blimey's own brother, he ruled in favor of immediate DNR when her brother's cancer had progressed. This demonstrates that he was ruling based on deep knowledge of both medicine and halacha. Those who don't have that kind of knowledge may have a knee-jerk reaction to be machmir or mekil, stringent or lenient, in cases where it's not appropriate. Rav David Feinstein, however, was the kind of posek who was very careful in those situations, and that's an important lesson for all rabbis who are involved in these kinds of issues. You know, I've dealt with Rabbanim who have been very liberal, you know, understanding that terminal death means they're going to die. But, you know, we, we don't we hope for miracles, but we don't rely on them. So by by all counts, if all the doctors on the team feel that this patient is heading towards death, then our our goal as from people is to not allow suffering. Because I know we talk about quality of life and that was something, you know, Brody touched on a lot. Quality of life, I don't know that that's really a Jewish halachic concept. So when we talk about a good death, that's not really a Jewish concept. That's more of a secular concept. But we do have a responsibility to step in and prevent suffering. That is a Jewish concept. I'm not sure I understand, believe me, what you mean. Can you define that a little bit stronger? What do you mean... We don't have to have a good death. We have to stop suffering. What does that mean? Yeah. So, so I guess it's very complex and a little bit nuanced. But there is a halakhic mandate to not allow suffering, right? You know, if you see suffering, you need to stop it. You need to end it. You need to not prolong it. So, if someone is suffering, whether it's severe pain, severe breathlessness, these are all exquisitely uncomfortable. Terminal delirium, which is an end of life symptom, when you're just completely delirious, and it can be very refractory to treatment. Um, this is all exquisite suffering. And if it can't be met well managed with medication, we allow patients to die. We're not going to put them on every machine possible to extend and prolong their suffering. And most Rabbanim agree with that. But when you say, well, there's quality of life issues. And now me personally, I agree with that. But me halachically, I don't know that I've ever really seen a source for that halachically. And if I'm wrong, I, I would be happy to be corrected. But saying that if someone is not having a good quality of life, we should allow them to die. I'm not quite sure there's a place for that in halacha. There's a difference between quality of life and active suffering. For example, if someone has advanced dementia, they're living in a, or someone with profound disabilities, you know, they're not having a good quality of life. They might be on some, you know, artificial machines. They might be using tube feedings because they can no longer chew or swallow safely. Um, they might not be aware of the surroundings. That all sounds terribly uncomfortable to me. We don't quite know if we can describe them as suffering. We were not in their heads. We don't know how much they may or may not be suffering. So choosing to forego treatment and allow people in that position to die might be much more fraught than someone who's in an active suffering position. Does that make sense? Yes, that actually is a really interesting and nuanced distinction. I appreciate you making it. Now, I have a related question. Of course, I'm coming from the position of having no medical knowledge whatsoever, so it could be that this situation won't come up. But I wonder if at times the mandate to lessen suffering and a patient's desire to allow natural death do not resuscitate might actually work against each other. Let's say, for example, a patient is suffering terribly from advanced lung cancer, emphysema, and the option of reducing the suffering means putting in a breathing tube, intubating the patient. On the one hand, intubating the patient will prolong their suffering, but at the same time, maybe it will reduce their suffering to a degree. Yes, they'll still suffer, but to a lesser degree, but it will go on longer. Does that make sense? I, I get your question. You're, you're asking if um, intervening can reduce the suffering by a certain degree and make it maybe more livable. Even as it lengthens their lives, which they don't right. want. So, so that's an interesting question. I guess what I would say is, is that first, all non-interventions, um, you know, non-extreme interventions should be used, such as oxygen, suctioning. I'm th we're talking about breathing, let's say, because that's the example you gave me. Um, there are medications that can ease the feel of breathlessness, which is a very common symptom at end of life. Um, so I would say that we should do all of those things. Intubation doesn't really, is is is, is horrifically uncomfortable. It is horrific horrifically uncomfortable for patients who are not sedated for that. Um, and most of the time patients are sedated because it's awful to have that tube down your throat. And when they start weaning off that sedation to see if they're conscious, to see if they have brain capacity, it is so challenging to patients. They often need to be paralyzed with paralytics to prevent them jerking, pulling it out. Um, so intubation is not something that is ever comfortable. It is, it is, it is probably people's worst nightmares to be intubated while 
awake. But if they're suffering from symptoms that are breathlessness and, 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 and choking sensations, that's something that must be treated. I'm not sure that intubation is an answer unless it's unless it's reversible. If you can temporarily intubate someone and treat whatever is causing an, an emphysema attack, you know, a COPD exacerbation, things that are causing unrelentless, you know, relentless symptoms, then they should be intubated temporarily to, to get through that phase. But it's not a solution and it's terribly uncomfortable. So it's not going to yeah. reduce suffering in any meaningful way unless it, it will definitely not reduce suffering. What it can do is kind of tide you over a, a hump in your, in your, in your, you know, medical issue. But the goal is never to remain intubated. And the goal is over always to get off the machine. Okay, I understand that. I want to ask you something about that anecdote you mentioned with that 50-year-old woman. Yeah. You said something along the lines of, now is the time you need to make these decisions. Yeah. And I'm curious about that because Rabbi Brody and I talked about yes. the right time for people to yes. start talking about end-of-life decisions. So I have two questions about that. Number one, is it very common for people not to have these ready when it's time and you're making last minute decisions on the spot? And the second question is, when do you think that it is time for people to start talking about these things, assuming that people are typically healthy and don't have something as far as they can see down the pike that's on its way? So my answer to your first question is yes, most people defer these conversations. People are either uncomfortable, you know, talking about end of life and death, which is so unfortunate, but understandable. You know, it's the unknown, it's scary, we don't want to think about it. So it's very common. And also number two, people, I think, um, when they're healthy, their decision is sure, do everything for me, right? You know, put me on every machine. I had an, you know, every hospital in 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 New York, in the United States is mandated to ask every patient on admission what their end of life preferences are. Um, if you want to get reimbursement from the government for like Medicare or Medicaid, you need to ask and document every patient. Uh, and people hate hearing that. They're they're being admitted for like, I don't know, they stubbed their toe and you're like, if your heart stops, do you want us to restart it? And they're like, oh my God, do you think that's going to happen? So we have to be very careful. We just say, you know, we have to ask everyone. We don't anticipate this happening, but in the unforeseen event that your heart stops. We want to make sure we're honoring questions. You know, I've had people as young as 40 tell me if my heart stops, let me go. I just do not want to be in this world anymore. People, And those were usually patients with a lot of psych issues, a lot of anxiety, unremitting, you know, you know, mental health troubles. And then I've had a 94 year old who said, if you got to put a bomb in me to keep me going, you do it. I just want to keep ticking. And it's, it's so fascinating to see that. Um, but we do need to ask every single person. And it's something that most people don't know. They usually answer with, let me think about it, you know, or, or do everything for now. And I'll let you know if I change my mind. And then it gets uncomfortable when the patient starts doing worse. You know, you don't want to tell them, well, we're worried that they might die, but you also really want to keep them abreast of the reality on the ground. And you do need to know what to do in the event that something happens. Um, you don't want to not intervene and you don't want to intervene, you know, that have been um, lawsuits for what they call wrongful resuscitation. People who said, I want to be DNR. That I actually wrote an article on this that was published. It was my first published paper um, advocating for DNR wristbands because DNR status is usually in the chart. Now, what happens if you didn't read the chart or your nurse is on break and someone else is covering, you don't know their status and the patient codes on your watch? Where are you going to find that information fast enough to decide, do I hop on top of them and start CPR or not? So um, I, I wrote this paper advocating for a wrist. Wristbands. And there are issues such as privacy and other issues, but um, people wear wristbands for falls risk, for, uh, you know, blood transfusion allergies and, and DNRs are used in some hospitals. So I advocated for wider use of that because you need to know patient statuses. So you need to have these conversations earlier. When is the ideal time? I mean, literally any time. I've been pestering my parents for years since I've gotten into this place. I'm like, Ma, you got to tell me what you want to do, or I'm just going to keep the machines running forever. You know what I mean? And, and they, they're uncomfortable. They're like, but why do we need to talk about this? And I said, because what if hospital you're in a car crash? What if you're skiing and you fly off the mountain? I mean, you really never know. We feel so safe when we're young, when we're healthy, even when we're old and we're healthy. But you really want to have a rub. You want to have um, a plan. You know, you don't want to be suffering unnecessarily, things like that. And if I can give you another anecdote, one of my closest, closest friends helped her father die at home. He was very elderly. He had a lot of medical issues and he had told his family to strictly follow the Bubba Verdian and his socks. And my friend did not like a lot of the rulings. And she said, the only thing keeping me going was knowing that my father was a halachic man through and through and, and wanted to follow 
his dying, who was the dying of Bubba in Brooklyn. And she didn't always like it. She was watching her father suffer. She felt that things could have been different. But knowing that you're following halacha and you're following your parents' wishes is so important. It takes away the doubts that you feel. So it's so important to have that plan, that the medical plan, the rabbinic plan, it's so important to have all of that. And when Rabbi Brody suggested that that plan should take place around 50 years old, he thought that's a reasonable sweet spot. Yep. Do you think yep. that's a good time or do you think it should be earlier or later? What's your own feeling about that, Blimey? I, I mean, I, I would always say earlier is better, but that might be a little too radical because most people don't drop dead. You know, I'm coming from a place of medicine where we always see terrible things happening, but it's not really the global reality for most people. So 50 seems more than reasonable. Okay. I want to go back to what you mentioned before about the Bavar Dayan and that story, yeah. that anecdote, because yeah. you said that his daughter was helping him die at home. Yeah. And I want to know what that means. Well, he was extremely elderly. Um, he was a Holocaust survivor. He had stage four cancer, multiple clots, strokes, dementia, everything that made treating him extremely complex. You can't give him blood thinners for the clots because he also had bleeding strokes. So the hospital he went to pretty much told the family, the best thing you can do is keep him comfortable, keep him at home, give him the supportive care. Um, and they got permission to do that. But when his breathing decompensated, the Rav and the dying said, you have to take him to the emergency room and you have to put him on a ventilator. That was his decision. And would you know it that after three days of being on a ventilator, this gentleman who was extremely elderly, who had pneumonia, stage four lung cancer, bleeding clots in all of his lungs, came off the ventilator, came home, kind of recovered enough to be comfortable in his own bed, said Shema Yisrael and passed away in his sleep. And you can never predict that. The chance that a very elderly person with all of these comorbidities, all of these lung comorbidities would get off a ventilator, the chance is nil. And for my friend, watching her father thrash on a ventilator in the hospital was very, very painful. But they had followed us, Torah, right? And you don't shop around, right? We know that if Rav A says no, you're not supposed to go to Rav B. And just knowing that she was following her father's wishes and not her own wishes, she couldn't, she, she had, she, there was no reason for her to doubt her decisions in caring for him. You know, she knew she was doing everything she had been advised to do. And I think that helped. So he let them keep him home. He wouldn't have mandated chemotherapy. He wouldn't have mandated. And if you want me to start talking about Summer Bunham, who did order him to get chemotherapy first, we can talk about all that nonsense. But if we want to be a little more positive, we can avoid all that. Um, but this, this Diane found that sweet spot of keeping him comfortable at home. But if he turns blue, it stops breathing. You're required to call Hatsala. You're required to intubate and do anything that might work. And as it happened, he came off the machines, came back home, died comfortably. So it's, it's hard. But when you're doing the right thing, according to your rabbi, your family, it, it helps. It helps. You opened that can of worms about some of the nonsense, as you put it, from other Rebbeim. I did. That leads to another question, because I know it's definitely good to be positive. We're recording this in Aravyantif, so let's be positive. And I also want to talk about some of the less good situations. You mentioned Rav David Feinstein's Atzal, how he was very adept and expert at asking the right questions and looking at every individual as an individual, knowing the halacha and the medicine. And you also said there are many who are not like that. Yeah. I would assume the problem isn't the Rabbanon who aren't there, who then defer to the Rav David Feinsteins of the world. The problem, I would guess, and tell me if I'm wrong, are the Rabbanim who don't know it and don't know that they don't know it and instead start spouting things that are not halachic or not accurate. Let's talk about some of those nonsense stories. And also, am I right about this, that the problem is these Rabbanim who think they know more than they actually do? That is a huge, huge problem, because when you don't know a lot, you err on the side of being conservative. Okay, there's a Dayan in Bar Park that we all know is one of the most Hasidish Dayanim, but also one of the most liberal in his socks. And that is because he knows such a wealth of halacha that my brother Zatzal, who had passed away from brain cancer, would go in before Yom Kippur to ask if he should fast. He would wave him away before he opened his mouth and said, don't waste my time. You're not fasting. You know, that's a, that's a big load to keep on your shoulders. And um and the more you know, the more you feel comfortable giving complex answers. The less you know, the more you don't want that on your shoulders, right? It's always easy to say, you know, you better not. You're better off being strict over here. Absolutely. And I'm looking for a message over here from a gentleman. I was looped in to help a, a young man with brain cancer who was really approaching end of life as well. And the family had asked a medical organization, a medical, not a halachic end-of-life consulting medical organization. It was strictly about referrals. Um, 
they asked for some recommendations for further referrals to help manage complex side effects. And then they got involved halachically. And at the very end of his life, this gentleman started having trouble breathing. And I, I'm looking for that, that text message where he was choking on his breath. And the family had asked the Rav if they can give him morphine. Morphine is not just for pain. It acts on your respiratory drive and it eases the, the, the pain of, of, of breathlessness. Breathlessness feels like you're drowning. This man had a respiratory rate of 60 per minute. I don't think it's easy to understand what that means. Normal is about 18. So he was breathing. Like if you count breaths 60 per minute, it's like... <sighs> really hyperventilating essentially completely completely it's 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 a ton of pain and the family was desperately texting this rav who had said no morphine it's going to kill him and they were desperately texting him they said he's choking we're watching him he looks like he's in a terrible amount of discomfort please can we do anything and i got a message from this family at like 11 30 at night i tried reaching out to the rav i got an icu physician who's experienced with end of life or from one um on the phone we had like four people on the phone the family would refuse to give the morphine because this Rav had said that the morphine would kill him. I messaged the Rav directly. I said, what is going on here? This is Was there any truth to that claim? Would the morphine no have killed him? That claim. Okay. The only time you can kill someone with morphine is if you inject a massive dose into them. No one was recommending massive doses. In fact, when my brother was passing away, the head of a from hospice and someone on the board of Chaim Aruchim, which helps with end of life decisions, actually refuted a question that a Dayan had at my brother's bedside. And they said, can't morphine kill him? He said, on the contrary, starting him in a low dose and giving it around the clock is much safer than waiting and then giving him a larger dose. That can decrease his respiratory drive. So you should be treating symptoms, whether it's the pain or the breathlessness with narcotics, but in a safe dose that's evidence-based that we know works. We do this all the time for all patients in pain. It doesn't kill them. So this was false. This this Rav heard the word morphine, which is you know a, a, a lightning word for many people, and said, you can't give it to him. It took them three hours to determine that it's safe to give him a low dose. Three hours of, I don't know who they consulted at midnight to reassure themselves that it's not against Allah to give him something to ease his breathing. Um, but the family, see, that's what the family will take away with them. That's what they're going to remember. His bucking on the bed, his thrashing, his breathing, hyperventilating. Um, that's what they're going to remember. And that's so unfortunate because the one thing that really gives people nahama when they lose a loved one is when they die comfortably. You feel like you've given them everything you can at the end of their life. You know, you've treated their symptoms. You've been present. Um, you know, my brother died home in his bed. He had, you know, around the clock here. My sister-in-law, you know, gave him the medications as needed. We had rabbinic guidance through every step of it because my brother would not have had it any other way. And neither would my sister-in-law or my parents. But because I was there to advocate for that, I didn't allow for any nonsense, you know, like, uh, you can't give this dose, you can't give that dose. I said, no, 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 this is not going to happen here. You're going to give me the Rabbanim who actually know everything. And um, he died comfortably in his bed with his little boys around him. And they all said, you know, they sang Hamal HaGoel, and he passed away in the middle of the night. And that's a huge um, a huge way of mitigating grief after you lose a loved one. So that's one of the things why, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about really good end of life care and watching your loved one not suffer because it, it's, it's everything. It's all you have to hold on af afterwards, you know? Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask about these Rabbeim who don't, I want to stay on this topic a little longer about the Rabbeim yep. who don't know what they're doing. Do you ever tell them you don't know what you're talking about? Like tell the Rav or tell the patient your rabbi is wrong. I am more experienced in this than he is. I've spoken to Rav David Feinstein, for example, I've spoken to, whichever Dayan, and you need to ask somebody else because he does not know what he's talking about. Is that something that you would feel comfortable doing? Because no. When someone, no, okay. No, because people people have their Rabbanim. Um, they have their Rav, and my job is not to make them question it. It's to go by the rulings of the Rabbanim they, they choose. Um, but if they don't have a Rav, I will advise them to use those that are truly educated on the topic. You know, I'll call Rav David Cohn. Um, I'll call, well, I can't call Rav Feinstein, but I've spoken to Rav Kamenetsky, well, not, not Rav Shmuel, but one of his sons who has been very helpful. Um, I'll refer people to big gedolim who, who know a lot. But if they choose a Rav who's a lot more conservative and will end up, you know, causing more damage, um, what I might sometimes do is question them medically. I'll say, I know your Rav said this, but I know medically this is not correct. Can we get a doctor to talk to the Rav to explain this? You know, um, a friend of mine who does end of life care 
was helping a 37 year old woman, unfortunately, who passed away in Lakewood. And out of nowhere, she had not eaten for several days because she was in a coma. Her body was shutting down. And that's one of the most difficult things for family when the loved one is not eating anymore. Um, you know, we always want to feed people. We always think they're hungry. We think they're starving. We're starving them. They're suffering. People don't seem to understand that the body doesn't need food and making your body work to digest and process it is really not helpful because they're reserving all energy to their vital organs. They're reserving energy to their brain, to their heart, to their kidneys. Um, you don't need food at that stage, but people still feel so helpless and they want that. So they called her up who said you have to put in a feeding tube. Now for someone who hasn't eaten in a while, putting in a feeding tube can actually kill them almost immediately because you get immediate electrolyte, imba electrolyte imbalances. So my friend who was advising this family said to the Rav, what are you talking about? That can that can kill her. You know, in the hospital, when we introduce the feeding tube, we're checking blood work every two hours to monitor the rate and the drip and the, the nutrition concentration. You can't just start a feeding tube and pour cans of food into someone who hasn't eaten in days. And the Rav said, oh, 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 okay, then then never mind. But he never should have answered that question in the first place if he doesn't right. have the knowledge. That's the problem. That's the right. problem you is shouldn't, assuming you, you know what you're talking about. That's right. It, it causes harm to the patient. It causes doubt in the family. And it's just, it's wrong. You know, you wouldn't pass it on other things if you're not fully aware. I mean, you shouldn't pass it on things if you're not prepared to and educated enough. So end of life should be no different. If anything, it's even more important. You know, it's a critical point in someone's life and 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 your guidance should be based on medical facts and and halacha not on misconceptions i want to talk about that phrase you use again helping from jews die that's something you wrote to me in response to my podcast with rabbi brody yeah. and i know i asked about this before but yeah. i want to ask a little bit more what that means to help somebody die it's, it's you're not know, saying to help a, somebody a, be comfortable I, i'm interested about the phraseology phrase. for you so you know what help helping them die. you know people help women give birth right It'll happen anyway. Birth will happen whether you're helping them or not, but you can help them, right? You can have a good birth. You can have a birth that's more comfortable where the woman feels empowered and knowledgeable about what's happening with her body. And if complications arise, what to do? There's no difference with that with death. You can help the family at the bedside understand the process. That's one of the most important things for them. That gives them a sense of, okay, I know what's happening next. Their breathing will change. Their skin color might change. This means that they may be uncomfortable. That means that they're perfectly comfortable. So that's helping the family recognize the different stages of end of life from weeks to days, even giving predictions. We know that only Hashem truly knows, but we also have certain signs. You know, we know that when breathing enters a certain stage, you probably have a couple of days left, a couple of hours left. So helping the family is one way. And that often includes a lot of repeated conversations of their current clinical status and why treatment wouldn't be an option. Like many times they'll say, but like, what about chemotherapy? And I need to remind them that if their loved one is comatose and not eating, not drinking, they can't be the recipient of chemotherapy. We will not give chemotherapy. And when I say we, I mean the medical establishment. You need to be able to walk into a clinic or be rolled in in a wheelchair to a clinic to receive chemo. If people are not well enough for that, we tell them you need to go home. You need to get stronger, whether that means you know, taking a break from your treatment to regain your strength, eating healthier foods, and then coming back to clinic. Or sometimes it means that they're approaching end of life and they're weakening and weakening and weakening. And we're not going to give you chemotherapy in that stage of life. So very often these conversations with families are just repeated reminders that when they're in this particular place, chemotherapy is not an option. But I usually say if they get better, if they regain their strength, anything can happen. You know, Hashem can make anything happen. We can always explore treatment if they kind of come out of this critical place, um, just to give them that little fraction of hope. Um, so that's how we help the family by, by, by ongoing conversation, talking about symptoms and what they mean. How do we help the patient? By treating their symptoms, by making them comfortable, by not allowing severe interventions that would harm them. You know, patient, you know, families can get concerned and say, do we need a feeding tube? And I'll say, here's what a feeding tube will do. It will cause an electrolyte imbalance. It will cause unremitting diarrhea, which would mean you turning and cleaning them, which is very uncomfortable for patients who just want to be comfortable. So if you're worried about their food status, let's talk about ways that we can, you know, give them something to maintain um, some nutritional status, but without pouring buckets of formula into their system as they're dying. So that's kind of what it means by helping them die is being present, making sure they're comfortable. You know, I had a really, it's not a funny story, but it, it left a funny image in my mind. A couple from Monroe came, drove over to Brooklyn to talk to me about how to help their father and father-in-law get comfortable. He had advanced cancer. He was in his seventies. Um, he was in unremitting pain and on very high doses of painkillers and nothing seemed to be working. And I said, you know, marijuana sometimes helps in different ways. I mean, I have 
you know, you can buy kosher marijuana lollipops for patients who can't chew. You can put it in their mouth. You can give them marijuana in chocolate if they want to smoke it. Sometimes it eases anxiety and can ease pain. Let's, let's start with that. And I don't sell it. I'm not allowed to. I don't uh, do anything like that. But if they're interested, I can tell them, you know, who they can talk to about that. And I got a message three days later that their Rebbe Hasidish Zayda died with a marijuana lollipop in his mouth in complete comfort. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry and I'm laughing. Just, I know. A... And you know what? I love the image of this elderly white bearded gentleman, you know, with his lollipop in his mouth, but it kept him comfortable. It did what the other pills weren't doing. And he was he was so close to death that I was reluctant to start him on something new. Um, and setting up a, a, an IV pump is complex. You know, you need to have the right system in place to do that and to put morphine in a bag. Like it's complicated. So I was like, you know, let's start with the easiest thing. And it's, it worked. Um, and, and that's something that I love because marijuana is in, in so many ways, even safer than narcotics. It's, it's, it doesn't have a lot of the side effects that narcotics have. So in that particular case, it worked. Um, but yeah, that's what it's called. That's what's called helping people die. They're going to die and they can either die uncomfortably with a frantic family who doesn't feel knowledgeable or empowered, or they can die where the family knows what to expect, is devastatingly sad, but aware of where things are headed. And the patient is calm. And that makes for a calm thing. Every patient that I've had that I've helped die, died with people singing around their bedside. Hmm. They've had sons, son-in-laws, grandchildren, and they're singing Torah songs and learning around the bedside. It, it sounds strange to people who don't watch it. To me, this is 100% normal. This is how it should be. This is how it should be. You know, Blibi, when you talk about the patient being calm, I wanted to ask you about the emotional component vis-a-vis -vis the patient. You've spoken a lot about the yeah. family, yeah. but a patient who is conscious, who is aware of what's going on. How often is the patient terrified and scared? How often do they get a natural sense of this is normal, this is going to happen? What normally happens in that context? Realizing every case is different. Yeah. So of course, everything's different. What I found is usually the patient is much more accepting than the family. The patient knows their body. They know when things are not going right. They get a sense from the doctor's faces, what they're saying, what they're not saying. They're much more accepting. It's the family who just doesn't want to let go because we're the ones left, right? The loved one dies. We have to live without them. We're the ones that are really going to suffer more. And that's what I've usually found. Um, also, a lot of my end-of-life patients, they're no longer conscious. You know, like going back to how late we implement end-of-life care, I get called at the 11th hour, you know, in the from community and, and beyond. There are so many misconceptions about end-of-life care that people are just like, oh, he's in pain. I'll just give him his morphine. No, this kind of care should be started weeks to months in advance to manage their symptoms, manage their expectations and the family expectations. But it's not often how things are. So very often I'm called truly at the end when the loved one is no longer really very conscious or they're in so much pain and discomfort that their only goal is to, can you give me something? So... It's not common that I have a lot of talks with my from patients in the hospital. It's different because they come in conscious. They come in with new pain, new symptoms. We do scans. We see that the cancer has, you know, metastasized even beyond. We speak to their primary oncology team who says, you know, I was afraid of this. We've used every treatment. You know, you can, you can approach hospice discussions with them. We would never do that without their oncologist's permission. They might have, you know, some tricks up their sleeve for the treatment options. But when we reach out to the doctor and we say, hey, your patient's here with us, this is what's happening. Very often they'll say, you know, you could talk to hospice with them. When we do that to our patients in the hospital, usually the non-firm ones, there's there's a grief process. There's denial. There's anger. You know, anger is often in the younger patients. You know, this isn't fair. I'm 30. I'm 40. This isn't fair. I have a child at home. Um, those are heartbreaking. When it's young mothers, those are heartbreaking. For me, that's like the point when I need to sit in a corner of the hospital, like stairwell and just cry because it's, it's terrible having their eight-year-old at their bedside or a two-year-old at the bedside. It's just unbelievable. But when they're older, there's often a place of acceptance. There's sometimes um, a place of, I want one more thing out of life. I want to make it for my grandson's birth. I want to be at his bris, you know? Um, and sometimes we get them there and sometimes we don't, you know, it's not up to us, but there's a, there's a range of emotions for the patients when they're fully cognizant and not in a place of terrible pain or terrible symptoms, because any human being, when they're in the throes of something unmanageable, their only thought is help me right now with this. Yeah. I'm going to tell our listeners they don't see you, but 
You've been smiling throughout much of a conversation. There are some very, very difficult things you're talking about and very, very difficult things that you deal with. And yet you said before a few minutes ago that you see this as entirely normal when people are singing around a bedside and it's part of your life. I'm curious, believe me, how you are able to go through life dealing with those people who are dying, with families that are in serious emotional distress because of their loved one who is in the process of dying. You're helping people die in that way. How is it for you? How are you able to go back home and, so to speak, live a regular life without this putting a cloud of doom over your head or gloom? I like that you ask that question. And I think I have two answers. Number one, it gives me an incredible level of gratitude for my health, for my well-being, and for the good that I have, my children, my family, my friends, you know, my career where I can do meaningful work. So it really gives me a different, you know, worldview. And I think most people would say that, you know, when you're working in a place of suffering all the time, you know, you leave the hospital and you're like, thank you, God, that I am in a better place. You know, I'm, I'm grateful I'm not in a terrible place like that. The second point is not is one that it probably isn't so positive. I have a very low tolerance for anything that's not immediately tragically deathly. So, you know, um, people complaining about normal things that you're allowed to complain about in life. I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, I, I've trained myself to care. You know, my nanny quit on me today. I've trained myself. Um, no, she didn't. But, you know, if my friend would say that, I've trained myself to say, oh, that's terrible. What are you going to do? But in reality, many things don't phase me. You know, I, I put on this uh, health event this last Sunday um, in the Orthodox community. It was um, a fairly big project. And I, one of my best friends kept calling me and saying, are you anxious? Are you nervous? You know, there were protesters planned. The Naturi Carter showed up with signs. People were calling me a lot of names, atheist and uh, serpent and infiltrating the from community, questioning my orthodoxy. And my friend kept saying, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And she's like, why are you so calm? And I said, well, no one's dying. The world didn't collapse. The event will happen. It'll either be pleasant for people or not. And it's fine. And she's like, my God, you're never, you never freak out. So, I mean, sometimes that's a good thing, right? Like it takes a lot to get me upset. And sometimes it's not because maybe it makes me a little less empathetic to other people. Like I've, I've been accused of being very unempathetic to people who were um, struggling during lockdown right? People are, you know, revising COVID history and saying all these policies were nonsense, they weren't necessary. And we can certainly have that discussion. I mean, we were learning on the go, not we, I'm not part of the health, you know, policy team, but the health policy folks out there were, you know, learning on the go, making recommendations, deciding what to prioritize. Um, and you can certainly go back and say, well, this worked and that didn't work. And that went on for too long. You can certainly do that. But if you think I'm going to waste my energy deciding, who suffered more, people dying or people on lockdown, I'm kind of like not very empathetic to certain, you know, aspects. And, and that makes people upset. You know, Blimey chooses who she cares about. I mean, we all do to an extent. True. But I think my work makes me um, a little too logical and practical in some ways, the, the, you, if you get what I'm saying. so I that, do understand what you're saying. I think I, that's I, just one of the takeaways. I think that it's not necessarily illogical or unfair to say that staying home watching Netflix is not the same as being in hospice care, but that's just me. Well, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Let, let me answer that. Let me answer that. Um, I actually tweeted during March or April that the people having the hardest time right now are the mothers at home with their children. And that was because I was home a couple of days a week. I was working in the hospital and on my days off, I was actually seeing patients in their homes because we were trying to prevent people going to the hospital. So I wasn't really home with my kids a lot. I had a nanny, but I'm still very much capable of understanding how in from homes who have seven, eight kids, small apartments in, you know, urban spaces without yards. I actually tweeted that. I said, they're the ones really having the hardest time right now. You know, healthcare providers, we feel like we're doing something. We're on the ground. We're, we're, we're trying to do something. We're trying to do our job. You know, essential workers had their roles to play and mothers were the ones sitting home doing nothing but managing, you know, children who had special needs or who couldn't handle sitting. So I actually was empathizing with that at, at the moment, not enough to go back and condemn everyone for lockdowns at a time when our hospitals were at massive overcapacity. So it's a little bit of both. Okay. Yeah. Totally fair. Okay. There's got to be something though, and maybe you can tell me it's not just from what you do that keeps you awake at night, that some days you come out of, wow, I, I just, this is just too difficult. I, I just need to decompress. There's some situations that must keep you awake because as much as you can be logical and as much as you can put things in perspective and say, thank God that I'm healthy, there's some situations like you mentioned young mothers. As young a mothers, terrible that's one. it. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's the one that does it for you. And, you know, this 50-year-old woman, um, the from lady that I referenced who died of her lung cancer, um, 
what I can't get out of my mind is her typing on an iPad, dear Hannah, I am so proud of the child you've become. And if I don't come home and she was writing a letter to her daughter and I stood there and I sobbed while she did that and that she didn't have energy to continue. Um, we literally had 12 people from the anesthesia and intubation team outside her room. They wanted to electively intubate. It's safer to intubate in a controlled environment and not when someone suddenly stops breathing, then you're jamming it down their throat. It's much more violent. So they wanted to electively intubate because like I said, Ruff Feinstein had deemed it necessary. Um, so she she put her iPad down and couldn't and just, you know, said Vidoy. That's something that will never leave me. You know, I had, I had a 42-year-old woman who waited many years to have a child and she had one and she was dying. She was dying and she was terribly close to her eight-year-old son, terribly close. And and, she, and sitting with her involved just me crying and her crying and us holding hands. You know, I was the provider. She was the patient. There was nothing I could do for her. There was nothing I could do for her. She was dying. She was maintained on the highest flow oxygen we had, which is a step before intubation. She wanted to be alert and awake. It's the young mothers. You know, children need their mothers. Mothers have that innate need to be there for their children. Um, I hope I'm not sexist by saying that, but we do occupy a different space in our children's lives than fathers do. And every child needs their mother. And mothers know that. And knowing that you're abandoning your children before they're ready, I can't imagine that pain. And that's something that 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 will that stay like every young woman who left this world too early, those are the ones who stay with me. Thank you for presenting that. I really appreciate your yeah. honesty and being forthright about this. When you talk about comforting, you just mentioned crying with that young mother. Yeah. holding hands and crying together. And you also talked earlier about giving them information just so they know what's coming so they'll be prepared. What yeah. other ways are you involved in comforting them, comforting the patient? Telling them what to expect is one thing. Crying with them is another thing. Is there something yeah. you can sometimes say to somebody that will help? It's not going to change the reality, but can help them deal with it perhaps in a way that will make them more comfortable emotionally. Some people like reminiscing. I'll say, what kind of work did you do before, before you got sick? And that will start an entire conversation. This is actually a question. It's funny. We were just tweeting about this. A couple of providers um, from ones were tweeting about uh, talking to patients about their work. And I said that, you know, when I worked in the hospital, that was one of the first questions I would ask every patient who was on my team. I'd say, what kind of work did you do before this happened? Or are you still working? And then when I would present them to the team, instead of saying, you know, 44-year-old female here with trouble breathing, stage four lung cancer, I would say 44-year-old kindergarten teacher. And that humanizes them. The whole team is suddenly like, oh. This is a person. She has a past, a present. She hopes for a future. She has a job. She has a skill and something she brings to the table. I feel like we look at them a little bit differently, you know, construction worker and piano player and, uh, you know, all of that. So very often their work was meaningful to them, even if they're no longer in that, you know, able to work, but it's part of their identity. It's part of what they've done in their past. Um, and just asking like, what kind of work did you do before you got sick? Can you tell me about that? Or um, what are some of the things you're most proud of? Giving them something to reflect on in a positive way as they know that their future is limited is something that often brings people comfort. You know, they haven't wasted their time on this earth. They've done good things with their abilities and their skills. Let me ask about families around the dying patient. Yeah. And, and I'm speaking specifically about our Orthodox communities sure. from your experience. Do you find that families usually come together and at that time, put their differences aside. Obviously, there's always family politics and many things, especially with something as emotionally fraught as this, but they generally tend to leave those aside. Or does this heighten the sense of disagreement? No, we should do a DNR, no way, and people are fighting about it. Is there any general rules that you have found in terms of how the family reacts to these major issues? I think a lot of that depends on whether you have a healthcare proxy in place. A healthcare proxy is when a person designates someone to make decisions for them if they can no longer do it. So if you have um, a patient who designated someone to make decisions for them, either an eldest daughter or one of their smarter sons or a spouse, you know, or even a sibling, there's very, list very little controversy because A, it's legal. It's a legally documented person who can do things. Um, and B, there's really no point in arguing. And many people kind of just end up deferring to that person. But of course, there can always be strife, especially when it comes to from families, which it can be halachic, right? And I have had that with patients. It's always been done respectfully, though, at least in my experience, where most of the family is comfortable following a certain sock. One son-in-law from Lakewood says, oh, I don't know. My rub said we should do something else. But you know what? You do have consensus. You do have a rub you're consulting. And we end up going with the majority of, of the family's opinions and the rub that the family had selected, even if there's a firmer person who feels differently. You know, we're not going to take everyone's 
um, opinions into consideration. You need to really come up with a plan of action. So sometimes there's strife. I have actually had good, good experiences. I'll be honest. I have had really good experiences in my private work in Borough Park, in Williamsburg, helping people die, you know, with, with the rabbinical input, with the family input, sometimes with the patient's input, sometimes without, sometimes they're no longer in a place where they have opinions, but their loved ones make them for them. Most of my experiences have been fairly good, even if there's been some dissent. I think people come together for the good of the patient and for the good of like their spouse or whoever's, you know, the, 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 the really grieving one. They don't want to cause additional, you know, sadness and, and fights at the end. Okay. Let me ask you, Blimey, in terms of the future, looking forward at what things should be like, what would you like to see changed in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox community, in terms of the way we relate to helping people die, and in terms of the way that it's currently being done? We mentioned a couple, such as rabbis getting more information before making decisions or realizing that they're not competent to make these life and death decisions, or such as making sure that you have a healthcare proxy in place. What other things would you like to see change so that we'll be more ready for this moment when it comes, as it comes for everybody? Honestly, I I, I think I think the most important thing is talking about death as a reality, uh, being open to talking about it, seeing even seeing it in our publications. You know, we all read the From magazines. You know, we read Mishpacha, we read the Ami magazine, the Bina. Those are the popular ones in in the United States. I'm not sure if there's anything else in Israel, um, and they don't always talk about death. You know, there's so many medical mystery stories that happen to people, and you know, lots of stories about psychiatric illnesses we kind of need to normalize death because it's a normal process. It's a normal part of life. It's one we don't like or look forward to, but it's something that will happen to all of us. We'll all be touched by it. So while we need the Rabbanim to be well-educated and not be, you know, purveyors of misinformation or socks that are harmful and not based in true medicine, we also need people to feel more comfortable, um, to, you know, to have those conversations, Scott, that you're talking about, you need to feel comfortable. You need to be able to have those conversations. And, you know, my mother hates it. She's like, why do you keep asking me this? Why do you keep asking me this? And I said, because it's important, Ma, it's important. So, you know, it would be great if we can reframe death and dying and end of life in a way that doesn't cause like sheer terror and clamping down on the topic. Um, but, but I understand, I understand why that is. But I guess I, I, I just have been in a place where for me, I've, I've normalized it as much as I don't ever want to think about my loved ones dying. You know, I, I've still come to normalize it and understand that, you know, ignoring it won't make it go away, you know. Right. It sounds a little bit like what is often said before someone who's dying says vidui to say this is not going to make you die. The fact that you're right. saying vidui now, some people recover. And exactly. some people don't say vidui and they don't recover. So don't think of this as a cause and effect type thing, but we Absolutely. should do this now. Yep, absolutely. Well, as we mentioned before, recording this on Erev Shavuot, it's a time to get ready for Yom Tov, for the joy of Yom Tov, Simchat Yom Tov. And these kinds of conversation are not necessarily the easy kind of conversation to engender a sense of joy of Yom Tov. Nevertheless, Im Matai, if not now, when, we have to have these conversations because these are topics which are very, very important, obviously. And though we can't lessen the pain or lessen the reality, we can be ready for them as they come up as they come up for everybody. So Dr. Blima Marcus, I'm really very grateful you talked to me today. Thank you. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed this talk. So thanks for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. 
I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.